Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, this pandemic has been unprecedented in the amount of money spent by government, certainly in peacetime anyway, and the amount of that government debt bought by central banks is also the largest it's ever been. But with central banks buying up bonds whilst maintaining low interest rates, who is really benefiting? Surely it's just the wealthy. Even though the Fed keeps on talking about the need to tackle inequality, aren't they the main contributor to it? And is there any way out of it? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor this is Steve King. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So low interest rates, is that all central banks there care about, Steve? Because uh, low interest rate, I mean, their thinking is low interest rates obviously is going to encourage borrowing. That's going to lead to investment. That means a growing economy. That's the plan, isn't it? But how's that working out for them? I mean, even before COVID, how is it working out for them? Yeah, well, badly. I mean, that, that, that has been the plan. And if you want to see where the plan comes from, you have to go back in time to 1937 when John Hicks published uh, a, a little article called Mr. Keynes and the Classics. Uh, and in that article, he uh, alleged uh, to have summarised the impossible to read General Theory of Employment, Money and Interest and Money by Keynes, published in 1936. And there's actually a a wonderful few examples of just how extreme the dependence of economists was upon Hicks's summary rather than Keynes's original, because one of the guys who was given the uh, both the Nobel Prize and the presidency of the American Economic Association, which is, I think, two, two large warning flags, uh, Robert Luke, uh, <laughs> Lucas or Sargent, I get lost, they, 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 they're pretty much interchangeable at this level, like in a typical neoclassical model, uh, change one person or something else, nothing, nothing changes at all. Anyway, in it, we're giving a, a valedictory speech uh, at his at his at a university when he was uh, about to be crowned president of the American Economic Association, he uh, said how uh, he hoped that Keynes uh, that uh, Hicks got it right in his summary because otherwise there was no way he could make any sense of quote unquote that damned book. <laughs> so okay okay so in in this little article rather than that damned book, Hicks argued that the rate of interest controlled the rate of in, uh, the rate of investment and. What he had was just an argument that effectively the higher uh, interest rate you have to pay, the more you have to discount the earnings you expect to get in the future. Uh, and therefore, uh, with, a, no, I'm going to say, with, an, with a certain future, okay, with a future you know what's going to happen, then varying the interest rate is the only thing which will vary whether you will invest or not. Higher rate of interest, less likely to invest, because it takes a higher return. You know what the returns are. You discount them by the interest rate, and that's what sets the level of investment. Right. Only one problem. What's going to happen tomorrow, mate? Yeah, but even so. I mean, you don't know. You don't I know. But, you, even, but I mean, you can sort of see the point, even though you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, if you do know that you're going to get, it's going to be discounted, whatever it is, whether it's twice what you expected or half what you expected, if you are lumbered with higher interest rates on what you've borrowed to deliver that 
uncertain future, um, then you know you're, you're going to choose the lower interest rate option, aren't you? If you you know well, yeah, that, that, that's that's the way it's rationalised, and that's what happens when people don't read the originals, which I can't accuse you because you don't have a degree and you're you know, not a professor and an economist. Mm. Um, Okay, uh, but uh, professional economists should read to see where the stuff comes from. And if you read it, what you find is that Hicks did not actually read Keynes before he developed that model. He developed in 1935, and the authority for this statement about what John Hicks did, by the way, is John Hicks, uh, because in 1981-82, he published a paper called ISLM, which stands for Investment Saving Liquidity Money, and the ISLM model is the sacrosanct was the sacrosanct core of neoclassical economics before the rational expectations revolution came along. And that's the thing that Krugman swears by. But in that article called ISLM An Explanation, um, he said that, in fact, he dreamt up this model in 1935 uh, when he was attempting to build a neoclassical model of a uh, dynamic economy. And as part of that, his little model was was a world in which uh, everybody made bread. So the only thing which was produced on the economy was bread. Um, and bread was made by combining uh, a whole set of different inputs. You know, obviously, if to make bread, you've got to have a, a baking oven. So a baking oven and energy and stuff like that was all combined to make bread. And then bread was sold on a Monday. And the prices that were set on a Monday uh, applied through the whole week until the next Monday came along when a new set of prices it's only a single price, of course, but this is the logic, mm. was declared. Now, in that world, um, the only thing that varies, uh, whether you're going to decide to invest uh, to, to make bread one week later uh, than this week, is the rate of interest because nothing much changes in a week. And this is what Hicks himself admitted when he uh, looked back on the travesty he'd set off in the, uh, in the, in the early 80s, uh, that in that world, in his fictional world, where the time period was a week, it was fairly reasonable to say, you've got a pretty rough idea what's going to happen next week. You know, not a, not a lot tends to happen in a week when you're talking about the economy. But Keynes, and, and this is Hicks's own interpretive way of setting again, Keynes's period was effectively a year. Um, now, when you're working in a year, it's pretty stupid to imagine that nothing's much going to change between years. Uh, let's choose two useful years, 2019 and 2020. <laughs> Wonder what happened between those two years. Mm. So, so, so that was the framework in which Keynes was working. The future is uncertain, and the further you go into the future, the less um, certain things are. So the main determinant of your willingness to invest is your confidence about the future. And that is, is subject to incredibly violent, ra- radical changes, uh, even with actually fairly trivial changes in the real world as opposed to what we went through in 2020. So it's a world where you can't hold expectations constant. And yet that was an essential part of deriving the ISLM model. Now, when you put that into how central banks think, and it isn't just that it turned up in ISLM model in its own way, it's been preserved in the models ever since by, by saying the investment's driven by the interest rate because neoclassicals are quite happy to assume they know the future. Okay, They're not happy to do it. They'd like to have models where they didn't have to do that, but their models don't work unless the future is certain. So they're, therefore, to keep their models, they're happy to make that assumption. Well, that's what's setting out these, the, you know, the, the models that central banks use. So, of course, in that world, all they can do is vary the interest rate. Um, but for the, uh, for the actual real world investors out there, what varies 
uh, the expectations of future profit. And they they bounce around like, you know, a drunken sailor trying to look for his keys under a light post on the waves in the Atlantic. Right. And, so you're saying it's uh, fruitless, in that. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. Right. So it's fruitless, the the endeavours, because where we Very, are right yeah. now. Cause the, cause the, Unless you put it up to, to buggery. Right, and, and this is what happened in two thousand in nineteen, I think the early nineteen eighties, when Vokler or Vokler was in charge of the Federal Reserve. Now he was a complete believer at the time. He actually ceased being a believer by trying it out in Milton Friedman's monetarism. Again, based on the same idea. Again, Milton Friedman assumed you knew the future. Okay, the future in Milton Friedman's model, from which. Um, the uh, helicopter money idea emerged with a world in which the individual amounts changed, but the overall total of GDP was constant. Well, if it's constant, you know the future. You know it's only subject to random chance as to whether your share of it goes up or down. A Gaussian distribution of the sort of thing a gambler can make calculations on. Um, that was the basis of, of setting interest rate there, and therefore again the same sort of logic applied. Now, what Vokler actually did, and I've forgotten the actual change in rates, but they went from about eight percent to seventeen percent. Yeah. Well, that's going to have an impact, okay, because that means any debt you're carrying is currently costing you twice as much to service. Your cash flow is rooted if you can't do it, and you have an economic downturn, a collapse caused by it, and that tends to knock the stuffing out of inflation, and that's what gave us the start of the low inflation era back at the beginning of the 1980s. Well, there we are. There's an example. You do know what the future is going to be because you created it. But the <laughs> where, we are, yeah. <laughs> where we are There's right now- There's a train crash. There's yeah, a train crash up ahead. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. put your foot on the accelerator. Yeah, exactly. So, would the mm. um, uh, what's the? Then you definitely know you're going to crash the train. But what 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 about now then? Because I mean, interest rates mm. are very low. Because I mean, surely the, it is an uncertain future. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what the future actually is going to be. It's the expectation, isn't it? So, if businesses are going, oh, it looks a bit uncertain because who knows how we're going to come out of this pandemic? Ah, don't really want to borrow to invest because of this uncertainty, then you want low interest rates to say, well, okay, it's, you know, we can borrow without it costing too much, so we'll do something. That's better, surely, than saying, well, okay, no, the interest rates are going to be 4 or 5%, because then you're going to go, oh, the cost of borrowing is too high. We're not really quite sure what the future is going to bring. So it's, it, it doesn't have to be the, 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 well, actually it, it, what it, happens it, or the expectation of what's going to happen. That no, it's, it's, it, it's another thing which is ignored by neoclassical economists. I'm a bit of a role here today. I mean, I've been reading this stuff for too long and I've finally cracked in terms of my capacity to hold my temple while I talk. Um, but in, in their models, of course, they leave out the role of private debt. And this is another one of the, let's assume, a can opener elements to mainstream economics. Mm. So they assume that private debt is a transfer between individuals. And so the person who lends loses spending power, the person who borrows gains it. And then when the, when the reverse happens, when the person, if the person who has borrowed the money repays you, sometimes that doesn't happen as I've experienced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pardon me, sorry. Um, uh, anyway, so the, the, the spending power of the person repaying goes down, the person getting repaid goes up, and the two balance out. You're, in a, you're effectively on a seesaw. It's just a question. Yeah. You know, you're passing... You're throwing throwing stones between yourself on a seesaw. Yeah. One of you is going to go up, the other is going to go down. Which is which is fine unless a bank's involved. I mean, you know, if I let you exactly yeah, yeah. banks, you're not obviously you're not an economist. No, I listened, I've been listening to you for too long. Yeah, so, <laughs> poor but, bastard. <laughs> but so, how does that change the the the, the, the expectation <laughs> on the interest rates then? 
It doesn't change the expectation. It means that the borrowed money inflates spending power as it's expanding and deflates it as it's falling. Yeah. And therefore, the the, the level of credit is a fundamental component both of demand and of, of aggregate expenditure capacity and of aggregate uh, demand. And if there's an expansion in credit, the economy grows. There's a contraction; it falls. It's, it does. It's, it's no longer you're no longer in a on a seesaw. You're in an elevator. Uh, but this elevator can go through the floor, which is a pity because it's not supposed to. Uh, you can go from floor one to floor minus two and there's not supposed to be a minus four. Mm. And that's when people massively start to repay debt. So you have experiences like the Great Depression. Now, because they, if you ignore credit, then you're ignoring the, that's the change in debt. Well, over time, you add up the change in debt to get the new level of debt and therefore you get high levels of private debt. And that's what's happened, of course, over this period. And now as the, rich, as, the, as the level of debt's gone up, the sensitivity of the economy to interest rate changes has risen dramatically, even though the interest rate has fallen. Yeah. So if you go back, and you might probably remember this, you're almost as old as me, um, oh, in the what? 70s. In, in geological terms. Oh, no, a bit of an insult, but yeah. Um, <laughs> In, in the in the 60s and 70s, when the government, when the central bank changed the interest rate, they changed it by a full percent at a time. Yeah, and there were there were occasions of you know dub, double percentage interest rate changes. Um, I think um, now it's much more cagey. Yeah, because they worry quarter about, of one percent. Yeah, because they're worried quarter. about exactly because yeah. they're worried about what's going to happen to debt, in particular housing debt. Obviously, no, they're debt. not. They're not. They're still not worried about it. They yeah. said the people got it more sensitive. See, you and I again. You're listening to me for too much of your, your time. Um, I look at this data all the time. Um, you know, I can't tell you instantly what the level of private debt in America is. I think it's 160 percent, but I could be wrong. But you, um, so you don't. So you don't think the central banks, when they're looking and saying, "Oh, we're going to raise interest they, rates," they don't look and say, "Well, we can't raise them too much because that's going to cause house." Prices to fold because prices asset prices yes they will look at that but that will be because not not the level of private debt but well surely that that they'll see that the two are tied together won't they they'll say well prices prices are going to fold because people are holding such high mortgage rates and if we push the rates up too high then those those mortgage uh, those mortgages are going to fold and there's going to be distressed sales and that's going to bring house prices down that I mean surely that's their logic isn't it. There's a certain amount of the real world that seeps through an economics degree, um, but the <laughs> economics degree dominates. And when they're making their calculations, they will talk about the sensitivity of prices to the interest rate. They'll have models, and I've you know I've seen some of the models in this case. Uh, they will have the Australian Economic, the um, uh, Reserve Bank of Australia published its model, done by uh, you know, a person I mentioned before, a guy called Peter Tulip, uh, and in Tulip's model, credit conditions come into determining um, uh, the level of lending and, and the level of demand for housing. But by credit conditions, it means the, re- the results of surveys of bank lending uh, uh, agents as to how willing they are to lend at the time, not the aggregate level of household debt in Australia, which is 124% of GDP, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those numbers don't even turn up in the models. Okay, And, and so... If you're driven by the models, as the oh. worst and therefore most central banks are, are they the still models though? don't even huh? – Are they still, though? I just wonder whether yeah. they've chucked a, chucked a few of those models away during the COVID years because they uh, – and they are looking more at things like, well, you know, if we push interest rates up, who's it going to hurt because uh, we need to get jobs back? And I'm wondering whether, that, they're, whether they're abandoning some that, of those early models. 
that's sinking in, but the, it is still models over all as. It is still a world where models rule mm. how they think. Those models are neoclassical. Those models don't even have the data we're talking about as part of them. The data itself, they, they will excuse not having the data in the model on the basis that we're on a seesaw when we're actually inside an elevator. Mm. Um, you know, so so therefore, the, sometimes it's very dangerous to use sensible real-world logic when trying to explain what economists do. <laughs> right. Well, here we are, halfway through the podcast, and really what I wanted to talk about, <laughs> and that's all very nice, but really what I wanted to talk about was to what extent are what's being done by central banks right now and in the past really helping the, the rich rather than everybody else. Yeah. So straight away, of yeah. course, you know, we've we've got a wealth divide. Uh, if you uh, if you say if if you push up interest rates, uh, then you know then that that's fine for people who are saving. But if you do the opposite, which is what's been the case for a long time now, those who've got a bit of money in you know got, have got this old fashioned way of thinking where they I'm going to put a bit of money in the bank and I'm going to save it for a rainy day. They lose out. Those who invest yeah. in financial instruments like shares win, of course. If they mm-hmm. if they if they know what they're doing, so this is the the environment we're in now is is clearly helping the rich. Those who can borrow to invest are going to do very well out of it. Those who can't borrow because they don't have the money and they want to scrimp and save what they do have because they have to because you know if 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 their income is up a little bit above normal then they need to save because they know something's going to go wrong. The car's going to need to be fixed or whatever. They can't. They're not going to earn any interest on 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 the money they put aside. So straight away, I mean, that's a clear wealth divide, isn't it, by having low interest rates? Oh yeah, and and um, you know the the cost of access to capital for those who can access it is is, is cheaper as as well, which is you know, again benefits those who have access to banking uh, finance, not those who can't get access to banking finance. Um, but the, also, quantitative easing was quite literally and deliberately taken on with the idea that you would stimulate a wealth effect in the economy. It was literally there was the argument made in favour of it. Mm. Uh, people will feel wealthier, they will spend more. The consumption will boost the economy in a virtuous circle. That's virtuous if you're wealthy. Yeah, because you're, you know, what's the distribution of share ownership in America? I mean, people well, think they've got some shares in the four hundred one k, but ninety nine percent it's owned by the one percent. Yeah, well, let me give you some numbers for the UK. So, eleven mm. percent of shares in the UK are owned by individuals. Now, of course, we know that they are wealthy individuals. Actually, more than half are owned by overseas interests. So, take those out of the equation. Uh, that fifty percent. Mm. Then, of what's left, twenty percent are owned by individuals, uh, but mm. obviously wealthy individuals. The rest are banks, investment funds, unit. Trust, pension funds, basically the finance sector. And mm-hmm. you could say, well, you know, they're all holding shares for individuals, you know, because it goes into your pension fund. But guess what? Only a mm-hmm. third of UK residents have a private pension fund. The rest are dependent on the state pension, which pays out the yep. same amount, whether you're destitute or worth a billion, uh, billion pounds. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, clearly that is benefiting those who've already got money. Yeah, exactly. And the extent to which this has been done, in fact, is so outrageous uh, in, in terms of you look at it. Like if, if you look at um, their arguments on debt and why they leave private debt out, you've got to get you know, very convoluted in your arguments as I have ended up having to do. But if you look at the one you're talking about and say, well, if you make, the, if you make, people, if you make shares more expensive, who are you benefiting? Well, duh, 
It's the people who own shares. Yes. And the, that is a massively uh, concentrated in the wealthy. The poor don't own shares. And That's one definition of being poor. And it is a license, isn't it, really, to make more and more money. So look at the S&P 500. Yeah. In June 2010, it was 1,030. Now it's 4,100. So that's a threefold increase in 11 years. So over that time, mm. inflation uh, aggregate over, over that period was 22.5. So it doesn't materially change, does it? That magnitude no. of that threefold increase in 11 years. So if you've got money mm. to invest, you get rich. If you, you don't have the yeah, money, you don't. Pure and simple. Yep, exactly. Um, so uh, the, in this case, the central banks have clearly become not, – I not, don't think it's intentional. I think that's, that's contributing too much to them because the level of un- unworldliness, and I include Ben Bernanke in this when I read his stuff. I mean, you know, it, it brings back thoughts of living in Amsterdam, but I did nothing with that strong in Amsterdam uh, when I read their stuff. Uh, what, what world are you living in where this, where this can be uh, argued and not realise that you're making a class distinction mm. by making the the, poor, the wealthy consumers wealthier and more able to consume if they're willing to do so, uh, while you're totally living out the poor. And then at the same time, if you want to in terms of, if you want to have macroeconomic impact, who do you give money to? You give it to the poor, not the rich, because the rich don't spend as quickly as the poor have to. Yeah. So yeah, it's mass- massively class biased, and that again totally, I think, totally compromises their allegations of uh, of uh, independence. But it's it, it is the wealth effect, isn't it? It's that belief. Yeah. So even amongst homeowners who might be middle income um, uh, households. I mean, the argument is that if your house is worth more, if you see an aggreg- uh, an increase in the in the value of your house, then you feel like you can borrow against that. So you do, and therefore you spend more. That's that. That's the argument. Well, in, in, and in and in fact, you've again you know made the mistake of bringing the real world in here and explain what is actually going on, uh, because they they do think the wealth effect is say, oh, I'm feeling better because my shares are worth more. Mm. Now, what you've identified is that oh, my house has gone up in value, and I can go to the bank and borrow cash against it. Yeah. Um, so that's the real world mechanism. And in fact, when 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 mainstream economists have attempted to measure the wealth effect, and this is big, I'm quoting research research by the um, by this little um, you know obscure think tank called the Federal Reserve. Now uh, they found there is no wealth effect for shares. Uh, there is a wealth effect of houses. Mm. Now, again, when you think about it, it's much harder to go and get a cash advance on the increase in your share value than it is to get a cash advance on the, inv- in, in, in the increase in your house value. Um, so they, they certainly both happen, but the, by far the larger magnitude is the house credit uh, channel. So again, even here, the stuff they're ignoring is what's causing the effect they're taking advantage of. Isn't it fairly simple to see that that wealth effect isn't really having much effect because obviously it all, it all depends on, with the exception of houses, because because it, it's it's a bit more widespread. But uh, for for everything else, I mean, you, you'd, the argument would be, well, okay, if some people are getting wealthier, then uh, those words trickle down. We'll look after the rest of us. <laughs> um, so, but and yet, obviously, that's not happening. I mean, we know that's not happening. But let, you know, let's look at a couple of figures. So, the two years to March two thousand and eighteen, the net wealth of private households in the UK was £14.6 trillion, which was 13% up on two years before, 13% Mm -hmm. up. So we had this massive increase in debt at a time of austerity, at a time when the economy was struggling to grow at 2%, or in fact, you know, even struggling to to grow at 1% in 2018. And yet the net wealth, and I don't know how this is distributed, but you can have a guess, 
is increasing over those two years by by 13%. What's going on? And again, it's the, you're taking out more debt. It's leverage. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is what, you know, I'm, uh, I'm arguing with, on behalf of the uh, new political party in Australia, the Australian, uh, the new liberals on this front. When you, you want to know what causes house prices to rise, it's rising amounts of mortgage, mortgage debt. Yeah. It's as simple as that. That's the and new that liberals, by the way. You don't, you, 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 the, the new liberals, is that? Because when you said it, it sounded like the neoliberals. I was thinking everyone was thinking, my God, what's happened oh, sorry, to Steve Pardon, King? No, 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 the new, the new liberals, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but anyway, so, so when you – this has been my argument from oh, about 15 years ago, uh, and it basically – it applies exactly as strongly in America, which had, of course, a house price bubble and burst, as in Australia, which thinks it hasn't had a bubble because the prices have continued to rise. But you look at the correlation between change in, in the level of new mortgage debt and change in house prices, it's the correlation coefficient between 1990 and now – uh, is 0.63 in America and 0.60 in Australia. Um, so you get this same force, force driving very different overall time trends because of the overall trends in private debt. But, yeah, that's that's what's the, the driving mechanism there is credit. As yeah. usual, again, left out of mainstream thinking. So what about if, if, if the central banks stop with QE right now? So, I mean, because obviously, yeah. I mean, the processes, obviously, the Bank of England, they buy government bonds and other central banks obviously doing the same all the, all the world over to try and make them scarcer resources because there's, there's so many of them. So that's going to keep prices higher than they would otherwise, which reduces the yield. That's what they're, what's, that's what they're trying to do. What if they didn't? I mean, yields would presumably shoot up. That means interest rates would have to rise. And if they did that, then what? Well, it's actually, again, on this one, I'm not so much worried about the interest rates as, as to what it does to the um, to the stock market. Not that I care about the stock market, but this is the first effect of any change like that will be seen on the stock market. And this is why when QE began, began about a decade ago, I called it a pack with the devil. Devil, once you've signed on the dotted line with Mephistopheles, you can't come back and ask for a change of contract terms. Mm. And so the, the central bank in America's case dived into QE big time when the S&P, and I love, this is one reason the Mephistopheles reference is so useful, bottomed out at 666. <laughs> yeah. Let's let that sit there for a while for the conspiracy theorists to take it on board. Anyway, 666 up to over 3,000 now. Uh, but so what happened was that QE was driving up. Oh, yeah. Share, share, pardon me. Um, share prices were being driven up by QE, and the mechanism is somewhat complicated but not too difficult to understand because the, uh, the central bank in the America's case, QE, meant that the uh, Federal Reserve said that in the open market operations are doing all the time with the financial sector, it would be on the net buy side of, of bonds, and this is not just government bonds but of all, all mutuals, but also uh, a, a lot of um, uh, housing bonds and so on. Um, they'd be on the net buy at the tune of $80 billion a month or roughly a trillion dollars a year. Now, what that meant was, when you think in terms of banks' assets, the asset side of banks' balance sheets, their bonds fall by a trillion, their, re re their reserves, which are non-interest earning, rise by a trillion. So in that situation, you've lost 
the cash flow from a trillion dollars worth of assets. So you'll start looking as asset managers, where can you get that return? And you'll go buy shares because yeah. you can't buy bonds. Okay, yeah. You sold the bonds, yeah, yeah. you buy the shares. So the Up more, so the the more bonds are around, then, they, then, then we'd see that situation reverse. So there'll be less demand. And, then, and yeah. then the share prices will crash. Yeah. Now, of course, by this stage, if you let that happen, because banks have taken on so much share ownership, you will have a bankrupt bank system. Mm. So you can't stop doing it. Every time you do, there will be a plunge in the stock market which will right. then so they, make the So banks, the central bank yeah. approach to that is, well, let's start signaling. So we'll start using cagey language. <laughs> we'll start talking about, we'll say we're going to start talking soon about when we're going to start talking about how we're going to talk about tapering uh, the number of bonds that we own. So everyone goes, ooh, yeah. okay, so that sounds like uh, they're starting to talk about that. And then, you know, next time they say, well, we've talked about it now. We've talked about how we're going to talk about when we're going to talk about it. And then eventually at some point they actually do start to, give some definitive dates but they've signaled it it's all about signaling isn't it for that precise reason to say at some point we're going to do this so you you you've, you better get off the share market uh, but you got a yeah, year and then or so. the market goes down and they dive back in again because because yeah, <laughs> they're scared I mean, the one yeah. the one yeah. when you look i mean the only thing that actually tells you what central banks are going to do next in terms of qe is if the share market's going up or down yeah um you know, but but this there has been a wash through of QE to the real world because uh, what you're doing is is you you might be increasing the price level of the uh, people of the shares owned by people who've got those shares and aren't on the market, uh, but you're doing a lot for the um, wolves of Wall Street. Mm. Uh, they're they're clipping you know that classic movie. They're clipping every transaction for you know yeah, a few cents on the dollar. Yeah, yeah. They're paying themselves bonuses blah, blah, blah. Um, so that particular segment, the Wall Street, not Main Street segment, uh, rises fairly dramatically in wealth and spending power. Uh, they're a small part of the the economy, but not, not, not as a wealthy and ostentatious part of it. Their spending turns up in the real economy. And maybe for every trillion in of QE, you might get $100 billion out in the real economy. And after a while, you're talking serious money, as they say. And, and that boosts the real economy while also boosting the stock market far more. But of mm. course, you know, it's, it's not a multiplier effect, it's a divisor effect. And, and, and most of what you've divided goes off to the, uh, to the, to the wolves once more. Yeah. By the way, the last FOMC minutes uh, from the Fed in the, the US, uh, when I was mentioning about signaling, their last meeting, uh, the minutes said it might be appropriate at some point in <laughs> upcoming meetings to begin discussing a plan for adjusting the pace of asset purchases. How close is that to a quote? <laughs> that, that is the exact quote. That's that's exactly that's the exact the, quote. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you've got to do that, do, read it with one of your American accents. It Give might be. Well, no, I'm trying to think how Jerome this Powell. This is a quote. Jerome okay. Powell it just talks very dull, doesn't he? So it might be appropriate. Oh, okay, drone it out. It yeah, might be appropriate too. at some point in upcoming meetings to begin discussing a plan for adjusting the pace of asset purchases. That's, My uh, God! <laughs> yeah, if that's, kid, that's that was, there was another there was another rider on that was if the economy continues to improve. So uh, I don't know how many how many <sighs> conditions. So yeah, but that that's the sign, isn't it? They, they, that's how worried they are in all of this. But so how do oh you get God. out of this? Because clearly, I mean, we've shown that the, the way the system is at the moment, it's helping the rich more than it's helping the poor. By the mm. way, government policy doesn't help on this either. So in the UK. Um, you can uh, get uh, you can invest in shares uh, and get it capital gains free if you add up to forty thousand pounds as a couple you can add up to forty thousand pounds per year now many of us don't have a spare forty thousand pounds a hand but if you did they're paying people yeah 
So you, to if buy you, shares if they can buy more than forty thousand pounds per per yeah, year. That's and, and what's the, the what's what's the average salary in the UK now? Yeah, well, I mean, there's the thing. You know, twenty five. Yeah, something like that. And they said so this is forty thousand okay. pounds that you've got. You know, so if you're to able hand. to save forty thousand, so you've got two people. Yeah. Okay. If you can save £20,000 per year, then you can put it in and you can buy shares. And if you assume, because that, you know, obviously that increases. So let's say there's a 1.5% uh, inflation a year. Then for the next 10 years, um, then the couple would have invested. Uh, and, and let's assume the FTSE gained 6% each year, which is pretty much what it's done over the last 10 years up to the pandemic. Then over the next decade, that couple would have paid in £430,000 but and to by my calculations, two hundred and seventy thousand pounds tax free without lifting a finger, which is an opportunity not open to anybody else who's not actually able to push aside forty thousand pounds a year. So it's the, the government is allowing you to make money from having money, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So shock. I mean, Marx used to talk about the. It, it, that is a shock. I mean, it wouldn't have shocked Marx. He used to describe the uh, democ- the d- democratic system as the the management committee of the ruling class. Uh, but it's so bloody blatant in the UK, honestly. Mm. So how do you get out of this? How do you get out of this situation? What can the what is there anything that the central bank can do now? Because of course, central banks are saying. Oh, you know, well, we're we're going to let the economies run hot because we want to make sure that the lower paid are back at work, uh, presumably because we need somebody to do those jobs. Uh, and uh, but you know, at the same time, we're seeing that the the rich poor gap is is dividing, and yet central banks have this crazy idea that maybe they can help with that. Whereas, obviously, as we've been discussing, they're they're actually making the situation far far worse. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really that can be, they can do without the help of the Treasury. Yeah. Uh, because if you want to create money, then it has to be the Treasury involved in there. The central bank can't of itself uh, inject money into the economy. Right, but they are creating the treasury. money. So the Treasury are creating money, and then the central bank is saying, well, yeah. okay, well, in that case, if you're creating all these bonds, we're going to have to buy them. Therefore, if we buy them, uh, you push up, as you've, you know, through the process you've explained, you, you, you push up share prices. So, um, yeah, with the, they're, with the they're buying system. the bonds. Yeah, 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 that's that's right. It doesn't create the money, but it does drive up share prices if the central bank buys the bonds. Yeah. yeah, and they've got to buy the bonds if there's so many of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, they've got they're self financing in that sense, but the central bank is deciding to do that. Uh, it is a policy decision. I mean, this is why we went through modern monetary stuff. Yeah. The Treasury runs a deficit that creates money and creates excess reserves. The excess reserves finance the purchase of the bonds that are issued. Uh, now, when the central bank buys the bonds, then in that, and they're buying them off the banks, that is an asset swap for the banks, and that is a deliberate policy decision of the central bank. And its main impact, as we've discussed you know, through QE, is to drive up share prices. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so the process is wrong. So what you need is the only way this can be tackled, forget the central bank doing it, the only way it can be done is through the Treasury, and the process for that has to not be the issuing and purchase and buyback of those bonds by the um, by the central bank. It, ba- it basically, mm. you don't want to go through that bond process. We've talked about this before. You just need to mm. uh, sit there with, with an overdraft sitting in the in the Bank of England or with the Fed. Or you could do you can do the bonds because the the bonds end up being uh, an interest rate. Substitute if you if you if you didn't mind up modern debt jubilee, then you'd want the bonds to be held onto the banks because that would be the only income source they'd have compared to the you know hundred percent of debt you might be able to write off that way hundred percent of of, uh, of private debt as a percentage of GDP you could write off. Um, then the interest on those bonds would compensate the banks for losing the interest rate stream they're getting out of the uh, private debt. 
um, and, and basically a way of sedating the bastards uh, back to what they were like in the 50s and 60s rather than the rapacious behaviour they have now. Um, so you'd want them to be in circulation rather than the central bank buying them out of existence again. There's a book in there, isn't there? Sedate the Bastards by Steve Keen. <laughs> Steve Keen's approach to modern banking. All right, look, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, fascinating as always. Look, we're going to talk about inflation next time because there's a lot of people saying it might be coming back, uh, mm-hmm. good or bad. And uh, will it stick around? We'll look at all of that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Did I, mate? Okay. Very reassuring, isn't it? No, someone's done well out of this pandemic. See you next week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve then. See you then. <laughs> 